0: Welcome to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. I'm Amanda. And I'm
1: Elizabeth. Thanks for joining us today.
0: We like to do ag law updates every so often to keep you guys up to date on the farm business side of things, what you should be aware of, um, what might be impacting your operation, and... As usual, we have our ag law specialist Peggy Hall with us. Welcome, Peggy. Thank you. She's got a few new things to update us. But before we get started, Robert Moore, who we had on back in our farm transition series, um, he just come on. He's got a lot of blog posts coming out.
2: Yes, He's, uh, Robert's position is funded through the National Ag Law Center, and for that proposal that we uh, gave the center. We wanted to focus Robert's expertise into something that we're calling legal groundwork, uh, planning for the future of your farm. And so part of his work is to have a consistent series of blog posts out on that topic. He's also working on several publications then that will go into further detail on many of those topics he's blogging about.
0: Awesome. That's pretty cool, and I'm so glad we have that resource.
2: It's an important topic. Yeah,
0: it really is. So we'd also had you on before that even to talk about solar and the development there and the Senate bill giving local authority to county commissioners had just come out. So can you update us on what that's looked like as it starts to roll out?
2: Sure. It's, it's been very interesting to watch how counties are reacting to that Senate Bill 52 that gave them some new authority to determine if they wanted to create restricted areas in the county. Several counties have proposed restricting their entire county from the large-scale solar and wind development. So that's over 50 megawatts, wow. which would typically be a a project in the size of several hundred acres or more. So, we've seen a handful of counties go that route. A couple of other counties do something slightly different where they're still kind of putting up a yield sign, I guess, you know, in regards to large scale solar and saying, well, we may restrict some areas or we'll create a process for the townships to come forward. And make a recommendation for areas in their townships that they want to restrict. So, a lot of that kind of discussion going on around the state right now, I've I've been surprised at how many counties are acting pretty quickly on that newfound authority. They'll also be able, on a case by case basis, to review these projects as they come forward. And some are taking that route and creating some standards for review. As those projects initially come to the county level first for kind of a yay or nay, um, so there's there's a lot going on in that world, and a lot of counties just trying to sort through what to do about this issue that does unfortunately end up competing with farming for for land. We'll keep an eye on it.
1: Yeah, I had recently talked to Eric Romick, who was also a guest when we talked about solar and the number of projects that are being planned for Ohio is you know, pretty impressive when you look at the number of acres they could potentially cover. So this information on how counties are going to handle it, Mm -hmm. I think it's going to continue to be interesting. Mm
2: -hmm. And we've seen most of that development focused in the, it started in the southwestern part of the state where the Mm -hmm. sun's a little bit better, kind of moved um, in a, in a northern direction. Uh, but now um, we have, Eric and I will be doing two meetings coming up here very soon up in Northeast Ohio. So it's wow. starting to emerge up there now and many, well, I've already done one, but many of those landowners are getting those initial contacts from developers. So we'll see more and we're already looking at, I know it's around 90,000 acres of farmland um, in, in front of the power Siding board. We don't know how many more acres are still, you know, perhaps signed leases, but no project yet submitted. So I expect that number will go up uh, pretty quickly here soon.
0: All right. Well, we'll um, continue to have you on for updates there. Let's move on to some new legislation. Um, There's a beginning farmer bill, there's income tax credit that comes along with that. So, can you share? what that means and what that will hopefully help with landowners Mm. and beginning farmers.
2: there's a lot of interest in this bill and it's been around for quite a while. It was in the prior session and didn't pass. And it was here, you know, at the beginning of the session last year, it was introduced pretty quickly. So it's taken quite a while to get this one through, but there's a lot of interest in it because it does create two income tax credits and those are built around this certified beginning farmer program and transfers of assets to certified beginning farmers. So the first credit is for um, an individual or a business who sells or rents farmland, livestock, facilities, those kinds of assets, machinery, buildings, to a certified beginning farmer. That initially was proposed to be a 5% of the sale type uh, credit, but it was changed at right at the end of the process. It was lowered to 3.99% of either the sale price of that asset or uh, the gross rental income if it's a leasing situation. So that landowner who makes that asset transfer to a certified beginning farmer can claim that 3.99% income tax credit in the year of the sale, or if it's a a rental leasing situation over three years, the first three years of that rental agreement. But there is a carry forward as well. So if it's in excess, they can carry it forward for, for seven years. So that's a pretty significant credit.
1: Yeah, so are there details available about what it takes to be a certified beginning farmer?
2: Yes. So far, there's statutory guidance, but they're handing it off to the Ohio Department of Agriculture to establish this certification program. So we'll see more details as ODA um, engages in its rulemaking and setting up the program. But the legislature did provide guidance for that. And they are looking at someone who's farming 10 years um, or less less than 10 years is actually the language in Ohio. It can't be a member or um, an owner or a partner with the person from whom they're receiving those assets. So if we have a situation where you're in business with someone that would not qualify for the the certified beginning farmer, has to be separate business relationships. They also have to have a net worth under $800,000 in 2021 and that number adjusts every year for inflation. And they have to be providing most of the, the management, the labor for their beginning farm and have, you know, the knowledge and experience and the projected earnings to do that. So they will flesh out those details a little bit more when they establish the certification program. Um, but we expect the other component is something that will be involved with here at Ohio State because the the last component is that they have to participate in a financial management program that ODA approves. And so we're hoping that Ohio State will be one of the providers of some of that education as we're already doing uh, to many of our beginning farmers. The other tax credit by the way is for that certified beginning farmer and the cost of attending and getting that certification in that farm financial management program they can claim as an income tax credit.
0: That's very cool. Hopefully that'll help get some beginning farmers in the market because it's such a struggle right now.
2: Yes. And we, you know, we heard from many and I followed the testimony throughout and many of those younger farmers talking about how difficult it is sometimes to get a foot in the door Mm -hmm. as a beginning farmer. So this gives a little incentive to that outgoing uh, farmer or landowner to to make that that you know transaction work with a beginning farmer hopefully it it will have an impact
0: yeah yeah it'll be interesting to watch that go through Mm -hmm.
2: it's there is a six year sunset on it so it'll be around for six years or there's a 10 million dollar amount set aside so if they use that amount up then of course they would need uh, to refund the program but It's either $10 million or six years, and we'll see what happens.
1: Okay. So another piece of legislation um, is the statutory lease termination bill. Could you describe some more about that and its impact?
2: Sure. This is one that many landowners need to be paying close attention to because Ohio has been really in the minority among farm states in not having a statutory lease termination date And so many of our landowners have been able to terminate, especially a verbal lease situation where they don't have anything in writing or haven't addressed this issue of how much notice is necessary to terminate this verbal lease or could be a written lease that doesn't address termination as well. And so we've seen over the years, and goodness, in my time here at OSU, I've talked to many parties on both sides, the landowners and the tenants, where someone may want to terminate that verbal lease. And the question becomes, well, how much notice do you have to give in order to terminate without harm to that other party? And unfortunately, we've seen some landowners terminate pretty late, and and that ends up costing the tenant operator who already has investments and thinking that lease will ter- will continue for another year. So that all changes with this new legislation, which will be effective in July. So it'll be effective for this year because what it says is that if a landowner wants to terminate a lease that is either verbal or doesn't address termination at all in the written provisions of the lease, in that situation, the landowner must do it in writing by September 1st in order to have a valid termination. So those leases that are now in place, um, especially again, verbal leases is really what we're concerned about here. For this current crop year, if the landowner wants to terminate it for next year, they will have to do so by September 1st of this year in writing where it's not so, a valid termination.
0: So even if it's a verbal lease, they have to do that in writing to terminate. Yes. That's interesting. Yes.
2: And what we'd really like to see, and I know you guys have heard me talk about this before is that all our leases would be in writing and would address right. this issue. If the lease says otherwise, that's fine. The law does not come into play. It's a deal. Oh, okay. Yeah. If, if they say, you know, we'll, You must give notice by the end of the year, then the lease would trump the law. But if the lease is silent or it's a verbal situation where they haven't addressed this issue of when must termination be made, then the law kicks in as the default and says termination has to be made by September 1st in writing. Only for the landlord. It's only for the landlord. Mm -hmm.
0: Okay, so the farmer could come in. Like in November, and say, I'm not going to be farming your land
2: next year. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yep. It only applies to the landowner. And it's intended to prevent some of those situations we've seen where the tenant operator is already invested in that next lease year.
0: Yeah. And then the
2: the landowner terminates very late and leaves that tenant operator with those costs and damages.
1: Yeah. I think that's a great protection Mm -hmm. for our farmers to be able to. You know, if a lot of guys are pre-paying
2: yeah.
1: for inputs. Even, you know, September is probably even a little on the late mm-hmm. side for some of those these days.
2: Yeah. Yeah, they fussed a bit over what should that date be. Um, some wanted earlier, some later. But September 1st is a fairly uh, common date among our Midwestern states. So that's what they went with. Big change. Yes. So, it's nice to see the legislature get some bills through. Uh, we've been <laughs> and seeing what, what And there, there's two big ones recently that will be effective in July.
0: There's something going on with AgLink, which I'm not very familiar with. I think the people, uh, representatives have stopped by my office and said this is available for farmers, but there's some new legislation going on with that.
2: Yes, that recently passed as well. And that one was effective right away. So those changes are now in effect. And, you know, AgLink is an interesting program. And I think Part of the reason that many of us don't know about it is because it's handled by the state treasurer Mm -hmm. rather than ODA. But the state treasurer, the current state treasurer, um, is very, very invested in AgLink and wants to make sure that farmers are aware of this loan program and is really, I think, marketing it more than I've ever seen any state treasurer do. And also was behind the proposal to make a few changes to that program. So, AgLink provides int- uh, loan; it backs loans for farmers and allows a lowering of the interest rate if okay. you qualify for one of their loans. So they're they're really the interest rate uh, reduction is where AgLink comes in, and providing that lower interest rate, which sometimes can be 2 3% lower. Uh, wow. for, and these are great for operating loans. Mm-hmm. So that program has been in place, but a lot of times those funds have gone unused, I think, because people aren't aware of it. And also there was a $150,000 limitation on the loan amount, but the treasurer proposed removing that and that is now removed And the amount is as determined on a case by case basis by the treasurer. So bigger loans now that are available. And then the second major change to that program is those loans are now available to co-ops, which they were not previously. So the law will extend those to co-ops as well. So a couple of big changes and a lot of marketing coming and trying to help farmers with this alternative Uh, Loan program that can be a pretty significant interest rate deduction.
1: Yeah, I think that's a great tool to build awareness around, especially as we're starting to see interest rates go up. Mm -hmm. Um, Not a trend we've seen here in recent years. Yeah,
0: yeah, that will help.
1: That will help a lot. So let's switch gears a little bit and talk about some interesting cases that have been going on here in Ohio. You mentioned there's some that are focused on eminent domain?
2: Yes, there's a lot going on with eminent domain these days. And, you know, we had this about 10 years ago, we had a rash of interest in conflicts over eminent domain. And then it, uh, there was a big push to revise the law, make some changes, quiet it down for a bit. But here we are again, with a lot of eminent domain litigation, and um, some decisions coming out on both sides, some favoring landowners, some not. And I hear that there's now some renewed discussion about making additional changes to the eminent domain law. So I I guess it's back as another issue um, that we're going to be dealing with here for the next year or two. But the recent cases, there's There's been some that are farmland preservation pipeline type cases. And we actually see those pipeline frictions all across the country um, and objections to using eminent domain for pipelines. So there's that going on. And then we also had the bikeway path up in Northeastern Ohio uh, that just recently had a decision come out on that. So a lot going on with eminent domain these days. So we had the bikeway path, that's been a project that has been underway for quite a few years up in Mahoning County, Mill Creek's Metro Park uh, bikeway. And they started that bikeway itself quite a while ago and then decided to use eminent domain to obtain some of those stretches that, that they weren't able to negotiate. And many of those stretches were through the rural areas and on farms and many of those landowners objected to the use of eminent domain for that bikeway. And they took a couple of different strategies. There was a number of bills proposed in the last few years to try to address that. Those never made it through the legislature until just um, the the last budget bill had some language in it that really targeted that one specific project that said, You can't use eminent domain for a bikeway path in a county that's between 220 and 240,000 people, which is Mahoning County. So (laughs) a little uh, piece that made it into the budget bill, but that was only for moving forward. So new attempts at eminent domain. Mm -hmm. Many of these people who have been fighting it were already under eminent domain cases, and so it wouldn't apply to them. So we had that and then just recently, we had a challenge by a landowner who argued that the park actually did not possess the the authority under Ohio law to use eminent domain for a bike path. And that decision just came out late last month and uh, the court agreed and said, we're looking at the statute that gives these kinds of park commissions the authority to use eminent domain, but it's not for this purpose. It's either for forest preserves or the conservation of natural resources. And we see nothing that suggests that this bike path is related to the conservation of natural resources. So that one, the landowner one, uh, many of the other cases in that bikeway path have not gone. in favor of the landowner so we'll have to see now how that changes uh, what both the park metro parks does and landowners um, moving forward it's a very very strange case up there but the conflict is one that i think people are very passionately lined up on either side about that yes you should be able to establish bike paths through eminent domain and no you should not especially and the judge pointed this out in his case especially in rural areas Um, so it's it's an interesting issue to to follow see what happens going forward and then the other one is about an agricultural easement that's the on the uh, farm in union county um where that yes i've heard about this one yeah yeah it's been another one that's been brewing for quite a long time. And you may have heard about it before, Amanda, when they when they tried um, to put another line across that farm that's under ag easement. And at that time, the ODA director um, defended that easement and said, no, that's contrary. That was the city of Marysville trying to run a sewer line across that mm-hmm. farm. That, that agricultural easement protects that farm Um, in perpetuity forever and says, this is to remain as farmland. And so when the city of Marysville tried to run a sewer line across it, the director of ODA stood up and said, no, you can't do that. This is is farmland and that would interfere with the easement. But that's not the outcome in the most recent case where um, the gas company wanted to run a line through their pipeline for gas. And in that case, um, ODA did not try to fight it. Um, and my understanding is they thought it was okay under the easement to have that type of um, action, that type of project. And so the landowners instead took it to court. And we just recently had a decision on that one. And it's a, it's a bit of a strange decision where the judge said, well, it, we don't see that the easement prevents this putting a gas line across here, getting an easement for a gas line. We don't see anything in the easement that would prevent that. But the way that they went about it and the fact that the gas company changed from a temporary to a permanent easement somewhere in midstream, the court objected to that and said, no, that was what you did there was was invalid. And so what I expect will happen is they'll go back and redo it and we'll still see that easement go across that across that land um, unless the landowners appeal it and ask the supreme or ask for a, an appellate court review on that so an unfortunate an unfortunate situation for the landowners i think they were pretty disappointed that that both the agency and the, the court were willing to allow this type of interference with their farmland and say that that didn't interfere with it being protected for as agricultural land forever. Did that all make sense?
0: <laughs> yeah, that's a little disheartening. When you put a put farmland into farmland preservation program, you expect it. Do you think it's because it's going under the ground? Will they be allowed to farm over top of it? Is that why they're letting it go through, or have they indicated why? This
2: is. I think okay. there's an. I think there's an attempt here to balance. I mean, I think the location of this preserved farm works against it. It is just outside Marysville, which is um, on. It's on you know toward the Dublin <laughs> side. Mm-hmm. So development is all around in that area, and so I think there's an attempt to try to balance the needs of that development with this preserved farm. That's my sense. And so if you go back and, you know, review the the, uh, trial itself, there was agreement by agronomists, uh, soil scientists, professionals saying, yes, this will impact this land, even though they'll be able to farm over it once it's, you know, in and and, um, the land restored, the production will not be the same. But apparently that the fact that they could still produce after it's installed um, apparently is, you know, good enough, I think, for those who, who think that it doesn't conflict with having that easement in place. But I do think the, the, the bigger issue here is that it, you know, is in a developing area. And when you look at the state agricultural easement program, they tried to, the ones where they're using public dollars to purchase those easements, they try to purchase easements that are a little bit further away than this one. Mm. This was a donated easement and they accepted it. They accepted it. So Mm -hmm. um, at that time they did not see an issue with it being, you know, in the location it was in. But I think now perhaps some are questioning is this the best place to preserve farmland in the midst of development? And that's, I think that's a philosophical debate that people have. Yeah. I reached different conclusions about.
0: I mean, that's kind of the point of farmland preservation in my opinion, but might get myself in trouble with that. opinion.
1: It's it's kind of a slippery slope. If they continue to develop, eventually there's no farmland that's not in a developing area. So.
2: Right. And. I think that, you know, if you look at the trends in Ohio with farming there, it's possible to do different types of farming in areas that are more Mm -hmm. developed. And we're seeing a lot of growth in urban farms and smaller, you know, local food oriented farms. And so that being preserved for farmland may not necessarily be a problem. It just may be that it may perhaps it can't be a large grain farm anymore Mm -hmm. if it's surrounded by development, but it certainly could be used. Uh, For other agricultural uh, production or types of production. And I think that's perhaps being overlooked. Is it it really a conflict to have a farm in the midst of development? Where if we don't have it, then we're going further out, right, for Mm -hmm. for that agricultural land. And some communities want to retain that land within their communities. So it's
0: interesting. Yeah, that's a great point when we talk about. Food deserts also, when you look at these areas that, if you're not looking at just stores where you can buy food, but downtown areas where they don't have access to fresh produce, mm-hmm. we know that those exist today. And that's a, something city planners can be considering for the future. If they have um, farmland built into those developments, even if it's, you know, like you said, not can't be a grain farm anymore, but it could grow specialty crops, mm-hmm. and provide fresh produce
2: locally. There's yeah. a lot that still could be done with it, even Yeah. if it's surrounded by development. But we'll see. Uh, there aren't many preserved farms in this type of location, so I don't expect we'll see many more issues with that set of facts. But we could still see this tension between preserved farms and other types of development running pipelines across, um, even out, you know, out further, we could continue to see that. And we are seeing that across the country. So that's another issue to keep an eye on. Just even for those farms that are far enough out that you think there wouldn't be, we are seeing some interferences that kind of pit that easement against that development need. Bit of a problem, I think we'll continue to grapple with tough topic
1: to end on, but we always appreciate <laughs> the law updates from you. And, you know, I think a good mix of good news, um, with some of these new bills that benefit farmers and, you know, unfortunately, I mean, a little bit of bad news, <laughs> uh, but we do appreciate your time today. Peggy. Oh,
2: you're very welcome. Glad to be on. Yeah. And we'll,
0: Include your blog link, farmoffice.osu.edu link as well, as we typically do, because those are great sources of information in between you being a guest on our podcast.
2: Thank you.
1: Thanks for listening to the Agronomy and Farm Management Podcast. Join us again in two weeks for our next episode.
0: Hey, podcast listeners. Just a reminder to give us a like or subscribe so you know when we release new episodes. If you're enjoying the podcast, be sure to leave us a review also. We appreciate the comments.